Well, good morning. It's a privilege to introduce Sam Mullinex as our scripture reader. Sam is in fifth grade at Bible Center School. He's 11 years old, loves to play sports, mostly basketball. I asked him today, since he's reading for us on Mother's Day, what do you like about your mom? And Sam says she's athletic. She plays basketball, even football, he said. I asked him if she beats, can beat his dad at basketball, and I won't tell you what he told me. Uh, we're glad to have Sam reading the scriptures with us. Let's dive in together. Please turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to Philemon 8 through 17. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. For Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me as your partner, receive him as you would receive me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Sam. Good job. Yeah. Well, Sarah and I have been married 17 years this summer. We posted this picture to Facebook, Instagram last night. Uh, yes, we were 12 when we got married. Uh, maybe not 12, but almost 12. Whenever we were going through our marriage counseling, we had read a number of books, experienced a number of training manuals. We thought we were ready. We never would have said that there would be no conflict in marriage, but we really believe that if we had responded properly and always said the right thing and did the right thing, that we could virtually eliminate conflict in our marriage. That lasted for about three days. At our honeymoon in Pigeon Forge, we're sitting around the table, and during that week she wanted to be, as my new wife, cooking me food, some of her favorites. She's an excellent cook. She is the best cook I know. In the early service, I said she's one of the best cooks I know. She is the best cook I know. She really is. I love everything she makes. But there was one dish that she made I didn't particularly enjoy when we first got married, and that was her spaghetti. As a new husband sitting across the table in our honeymoon cabin, I said, sweetheart, I really, really just don't like this spaghetti. Can you make it more like my mom? <laughs> that evidently wasn't in one of the training manuals, but it should have been. I won't tell you what happened afterwards. This is a church service, but I quickly learned that's not the thing to say. 
Now, I don't want to be one of those pastors who gives you the idea that all of our conflict was 17 years ago, but now we've graduated to a new place where we never have to negotiate our relationships. That's certainly not true. Friday night, we went to see my mom to celebrate Mother's Day a little bit early, and after we came home, I was getting ready for my Saturday morning run, and I have a new pair of socks I got at Robert's Run Store that I just love, and I couldn't find one of the socks. I had one, but I couldn't find the other one, and so I'm going through the laundry pile and I move it not once, not twice, but three times. And I guess I'm becoming visibly frustrated. Uh, I'm maybe huffing and puffing. I'm not quite sure. You can ask Sarah. But I'm moving the laundry basket around, sliding it across the floor. And finally, I pick up the laundry basket and underneath find my missing sock. I turn around and she's standing at the door with that look on her face. Now, wives, you don't have to say anything. When you've been married for a few years, we especially know you don't have to say anything, but we know what you're thinking. And it had that look like, really? Huffing and puffing over a sock? Really? And and afterwards, um, I wanted to say, well, if there wasn't laundry pile in the floor, I wouldn't have this problem. But I just remembered spaghetti. Remember the spaghetti. Don't say those things. You know, sometimes life is that way. We go into relationships thinking everything is going to be ideal. We have high expectations for our jobs, for our friends, for our churches, for our children. And then when things don't pan out quite like we want, then we go into a tailspin and wonder, is this relationship worth it? Let me encourage you this morning. This relationship, your relationships are worth it. And this morning, my plan is from Philemon chapter 8, or verses 8 through 17, is to show you why. If you're taking notes, feel free to follow along in your outline or on the app. Number one, what can we learn about relationships? First of all, relationships cause a ton of friction. Relationships cause a ton of friction. Before we read verses 10 and 11, we were reminded last week that Paul's writing this book to Philemon. Philemon is a wealthy businessman from the city of Colossae, a city in Asia Minor, now known as Turkey. And Philemon is uh, the, the man who runs the house church, or the church meets in his house. Evidently, Philemon had gone to Ephesus, probably heard Paul speak in Ephesus, believed the gospel, comes back with the church planter, Epaphras, and is a leader in this church. Well, he has a slave, and unfortunately, many, if not most, of the Roman uh, wealthy men and women of that day owned slaves. And he had one particular slave named Onesimus. We'll talk about it in a moment. But Onesimus ran away, evidently stole some money, and fled to Rome. While he was in Rome, he meets the Apostle Paul. And just like his master Philemon had heard the gospel and came to faith in Jesus, Onesimus comes to faith in Jesus. You can picture as he's there in the prison with the Apostle Paul. It seems like he had a job somewhere around the prison. One tradition says that he was the chef. We don't know for sure. But you can imagine as he brings Paul his food one day, Paul, having uh, heard that he had received the gospel, knowing he wanted to be a follower of Jesus, strikes up a conversation. Onesimus, where are you from? Well, I'm from Colossae. Oh, are you really, Onesimus? I have some friends in Colossae. Uh, Where'd you used to live? 
Well, I used to be, uh, I used to be employed. Actually, I was a slave in Colossae. Really? Who was your master? Well, his name was uh, Philemon. And one thing leads to the other. Paul puts two and two together. Paul realizes that he's the spiritual father to both of these men, and they are at odds with one another. Paul writes in Philemon uh, verses 10 and 11 that he wants to keep him there with him in Rome, but he knows he needs to send him back so these two men can be reconciled. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. To Philemon he writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. If you underline in your Bible, you might underline the word useful and useless in verse 11. It's a purposeful play on words by the Apostle Paul. The name, the name Onesimus means useful. It was a common name given to slaves. Uh, the slave mother wanted their, her son to be considered useful, seen as useful. So every time that the master would call his name, he would be calling for useful. But we find here that Onesimus was actually useless. You can picture one day Philemon hollering for Onesimus, where's useful? And useful doesn't show up. It's time to get the chores done. Where's useful? Useful doesn't get the chores done. And one day Philemon just scratches his head and says, well, useful is useless. He's not doing his job. And so Paul writes and says, this former employee, or more particular, this former slave who was useless is now living up to his name. He is now useful because he has put his faith in Jesus and the gospel is changing him from the inside out. Imagine as Onesimus arrives back to Colossae, probably with a messenger. He has this letter in hand that we know now is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he has this letter to give to Philemon. He could lose his life or he could at least be whipped or beaten for having left and stolen money. But now he comes back and, and I just, just imagine, we don't know if this happened. You can picture as maybe he said, um, you know, I think I'm just going to stay here hidden behind the barn, messenger, while you go read the letter. If Philemon likes what he hears, give me a thumbs up. If he doesn't, give me a thumbs down and I'll run away. Well, the messenger comes out and gives him a thumbs up. And Philemon is reconciled to, or excuse me, Onesimus is reconciled to Philemon, and the two, again, are made one. This letter reminds us that relationships cause a ton of friction. There's a lot of conflict involved when you have two human beings, whether they be husband or wife or best friends or co-workers or church members, when two people, no matter how great they are, when their lives converge, there's going to be carnage at times at the intersection because we're all selfish. Relationships cause a lot of conflict, if not, if not at first, definitely in the days to come. Have you ever had a friend or a relative who betrayed your trust? Maybe sharing matters that you shared with them in confidence. Maybe they gossiped about you behind their back. Maybe they blew up at you when you did not do what you, they wanted you to do. 
Maybe they won't let some sin of your past go, or they won't forgive you for something you did, or they won't forgive you for something that they perceive that you did, that you're not still sure that you did. Doesn't this sound complex? Uh, Maybe you have a friend or a relative who took everything personally, and they're overly defensive when you tried to help them or help them grow. Maybe they lied about you to make themselves look good and to make you look bad. Maybe you felt threatened or you feel threatened anytime you try to include a third friend in the circle. They feel like they're betrayed. Or maybe they try to manipulate you with their emotions. Life is messy. And I just listed a few examples, but I would like to invite you now to think of the person in your life with whom you have the most conflict. Get their face in your mind. See them, hear them, think about why right now you have conflict. Some of you may not know why. It's been so long, you know you can't stand that person. You almost hate your guts, but you can't say you hate their guts because, you know, Christians aren't allowed to say that. But you just, maybe you don't know why. Some of you know why. You could list 25 reasons why. And you could spell it out about how this person maybe legitimately hurt you. Some of you have been hurt deeply. And you have every reason, earthly speaking, to be angry and to be hurt and at times to pursue justice. That's why I love living in the United States of America. We live in a land where there's still a semblance of justice. But yet justice hasn't been served. Or there's no way justice can be served. It's your word against them. And so you're hurt or you're bitter. You know, sometimes we cause fights and arguments with each other, and we really know it's not a big deal, but it becomes a big deal. I read this week a term I never heard before. It's called horizontal hostility. It's a sociological phenomenon that's bizarre to people outside of culture, but within a certain culture, people will fight over the smallest things. For instance, Star Wars fans versus Star Trek fans. I won't ask you which one you are, but people who, those of us who are kind of outside of that world, we're, we're like, what's, what's the big deal? And even me saying what's the big deal made some of you right now aggravated, so I'm going to move on. I found out this week that actually vegans can't stand vegetarians. Do you know that? If you're a vegetarian, vegans don't think you've gone all the way. You haven't gone far enough. People who drive Harley-Davidson, ride Harley-Davidson's, think people with Hondas are cheap. Or people who ride BMWs think that people who ride Harleys are cheap. And the list could go on and on. This was sad this week to read that a few years ago, Heather Whitestone, the first deaf Miss America, was actually received a lot of criticism because people in her circle says that she said that she wasn't deaf enough. Uh, she didn't use ASL. She tried to use English and speak, and so she took some criticism for taking the title as the first deaf Miss America because she wasn't deaf enough. You know, you have your issues that you could list, but think about sometimes the things that we fight and fuss over. I won't mention specifics, but you know, kind of. if we want to know what we fight and fuss over, all we have to look at is our Facebook page or whatever your Twitter is. Somebody makes a comment you disagree with and the whole page blows up. Think about what that must look like to the unsaved world. We have people dying without Christ 
And at times we're so quick to die on the hill of our preferences. You know, as the song says, I got issues and you got them too. Because where there's relationships, there's going to be a lot of friction. All right. So happy Mother's Day. What do we do about that? Where do we go from here? We all know it's true. Well, thankfully, there's good news. In the passage, God's going to tell us that the good news, there's deliverance and hope possible. Number two, the gospel creates a new type of family. The gospel creates a new type of family. If you have your pen or you're taking notes, let's start in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul, as an apostle, had every right to tell Philemon what to do. Uh, This was a whole nother level. We don't have apostles today. Apostles saw the risen Christ. They were on a level where they were commissioned to build the early church to establish the word of God, establish the gospel to the nations. And so we know that Paul was an apostle. With his authority, far above that of a pastor, he could have looked at Philemon and said, you receive him back and don't ask any questions. He could have put on the corporate hat, the title boss, and he could have totally owned it. He did that in the letter to the Corinthians. He totally owned his apostleship and said, do what I say because God has told me. But here he takes a different approach. He takes more of a brotherly, gentle approach. He says in verse 9, I'm doing this for love's sake. I'm appealing to you as an ambassador. I want you to know how much I care before you care how much I know. Verse 12 We continue. He says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. The common Greek word for heart is the word cardia. From We get our word cardiac or uh, cardio. But in this particular passage, it's not cardia. It's a different word that refers to our inner emotions, uh, the seed of our emotions. In the King James, it recalls our bowels of compassion. I grew up in church And whenever our pastor would talk about the bowels of mercy or the bowels of compassion, I always thought that was hilarious. I was like, wow, Uh, God's word rocks, the words that he uses. But it's referring to our, our inner seat where we feel the most. The ancient Greeks recognized there was a connection uh, between our, our intestines, between our inner organs, our organs, and that of our emotions. That's why we get airport tummy. Uh, job interviews make us sick. When we get in love, we feel the butterflies. All of that is connected with this word. In verse 7, he uses the same word as he does in verse 12. Verse 7 says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love because the hearts of the saints, same word, have been refreshed through, through you. In verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, if you're from Philadelphia, if you've been to Philadelphia, you know what Philadelphia means. Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. The word Philadelphia and Philemon are very closely connected. 
Uh, actually, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, and the name Philemon means the man of brotherly love. And so what Paul is doing here is he's appealing to his name. It would be like a friend of mine. It'd be like Andy finding out that I'm at odds with Wayne and Andy telling me, hey, man, you've not been much of a friend to Wayne. Uh, Matt, you need to really live up to your last name. Come on, man. Live up to your last name and be a good friend to Wayne. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's using his name as a way to uh, persuade him to love Onesimus. In verses 13 and 14, he continues, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. For some reason, Paul wanted to keep Onesimus. Some believe, scholars believe, there's a possibility he was even hinting here that maybe if he sent Onesimus back to Philemon, that Philemon would forgive him and allow him to return to Paul to be his companion. Paul loved to work in teams. You see that with Silas. Eventually, you see that with Timothy and with Luke. Paul may have wanted Onesimus to join his team, but he knew he had to send him first back to the person from whom he had stolen. He had to send him back to his master to get that relationship right. The word compulsion here in verse 14, and the idea carries over in verse 15, Paul is saying, I'm not going to compel you to do this. I'm going to ask you to do this. And one thing I'm learning with being a parent or being a pastor is that whenever we command people to do what we want, it doesn't go over nearly as well as when we just ask them, reason with them. And sometimes we learn by asking as leaders, by listening more than we do, of course, by talking. He was saying, hey, Paul, I'll, or Philemon, I want to know what you think about where Onesimus could best serve the kingdom. It reminds me of the story I heard about a pastor who had trouble listening to people he was so excited about his job, and that's to be commended that after each service, he would have people come to the front for prayer. He would say, how can I pray for you? And one gentleman came to the front for prayer, and he said, Pastor, please pray for my hearing. The pastor put one hand, before he could ask any more questions or say another word, he put one hand on one ear and one hand on the other ear and began to pray the lights down for this man. Dear Lord, help his hearing. Dear Lord, bless his hearing. He to shake his head a little bit. You know, people around him were wondering, is he going to hurt the man? Prayed as hard as he could. He wanted to be a good pastor. And after he got done, he said, amen and amen. And the man said, well, pastor, thanks for that, but I was talking about it at the courtroom tomorrow. <laughs> Some of you will get that at lunch. <laughs> we listen. Paul says, I want to listen to your heart. Then in verse 15, interestingly, he, he goes a step further, and it's not just that he is saying, hey, this is, what, this is what I think could be going on, but he says in verse 15, perhaps this is, he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Paul is saying, it is possible that Philemon, you lost Onesimus for a season so that Onesimus could ultimately come to Jesus. What Paul was doing was zooming out so Philemon could see the forest for the trees. 
He was saying really Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So here's Philemon scratching his head wondering, why did Onesimus steal from me? Why did these bad things happen? And Paul is saying, perhaps, it's not just me, perhaps God is involved. And because God let this happen, Onesimus is now a follower of Jesus. What if we looked at life the way Paul does in verse 15? Instead of seeing our suffering as just the result of a bad decision or somebody hurting us as a result of their bad decision, what if we saw life the the 30,000 foot level or higher and we said, God's at work in my life and he's doing something that I don't understand. Now, if we come to visit you in the hospital, Pastor Chad and his team, we're not going to get out Romans 8, 28, and we're not going to say, well, you're in the hospital today. All right, I got, it, I got the prescription for you, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those that love God. You probably wouldn't appreciate that in the first five minutes of a hospital visit. But I do want to encourage you as your pastor before you go to the hospital, believe in your heart that all things work together for good. In the next 28 and a half years, I'm going to need you to remind me that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Some of you right now have children who are wayward from the faith. You raise them in church, you raise them in the gospel, and they're no longer in church, and they no longer seem to have a heart for the Lord, and you are burdened as a parent. And you're wondering, does God still know their name? Does God know where they live? Let the message of Philemon be a blessing to you. Think about it. A slave runs more than a thousand miles away, thousands of miles away, goes to a city of tens if not over a hundred thousand people at that time. He is engulfed in people, engulfed in society. Nobody knows where Onesimus is, but God knows where Onesimus is. And God hunts him down and brings him across the path of the Apostle Paul. And he comes to faith in Jesus because God always knows where we are. And right now, God always knows where you are. God's in charge. We're not. We see it in verse 16, this appeal to family. He says, Philemon, don't just receive him as a slave. This is brilliant. Instead of going to the the ballot box, instead of going to uh, media to abolish slavery, he does something amazing here. He says, no longer as a slave, but receive him as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the the Lord. Whenever the Apostle Paul wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back, he doesn't point back to the Ten Commandments. He points to family. And he says, Philemon, you are family. Families stay together. Families pray together. Families forgive each other. And so on that basis, I want you to receive back your wayward Onesimus. Right now in our church, Maybe there's somebody in this community that you're at odds with. There's somebody that you haven't spoke to in months, weeks, maybe even years. 
Maybe there's somebody in your family and you're thinking, man, I, you know what? I know I'm at odds with this person, but I don't even know where to start. First of all, I want you to know we've all been there or some of us are there right now. So you're not odd because you've got conflict. But what I'm learning is that the best way to resolve conflict is to start with what you have in common. If that person is a Christian, instead of going to them with your list of 25 things they've done wrong, what if you went to them and said, look, we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. We're family. I don't even know how to, how to continue, but I want to give this a try. You say, well, what if they don't accept? Well, you've tried, but what if they do accept? You see, the people in this room and the people in our church and the people in churches around the world are the people with whom we will spend eternity. You say, well, I'm not going to spend eternity with that person. <laughs> They're a follower of Jesus. You don't have a choice. I heard this week a uh, dear friend in the community was telling us that she went up to Ohio to a funeral for her brother. And because her and her family were at odds with one another, she drives all, drives all the way up to Ohio and her other siblings won't let her, her brother, or her kids into the funeral for her own brother because of words that they had years ago. Now she's telling this story and she's just crying. It wasn't the trip. It wasn't the gas money. It wasn't the miles. Think about it. We only have one life. And as she shares the stories of her brother loving her as a little girl and friends and family and fun and holidays, she said, I didn't even get to tell him goodbye. Do I think she was the innocent party completely? Probably not. We never are. But what I'm saying is this. Why would you spend the rest of your life at odds with that person, especially if you're in the gospel family together? Yes, this relationship is hard, and sometimes we have to have honest conversations, and sometimes we have to tell people what they don't want to hear, and sometimes we have to hear what we don't want to hear. Trust me, I know, I've been there. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than us. And whenever we say, look, it's not about my pride, it's not about my reputation, it's about Jesus, then we can begin to reconcile. Paul says the gospel creates a new kind of family. He calls us to it and empowers us for it. Number one, relationships create a ton of conflict. The gospel creates a new type of family. But lastly, in number three, Jesus calls us to total forgiveness. It says in verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If you underline, you might underline the word partner and the word receive. The word partner means someone who shares life, someone who's been in the trenches together. It's the same root as verse 6. Back in verse 6 we saw last Sunday, Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. So in verse 17, the idea of partner is more than just, it's not blood relation, it's heart relation. We're related in the gospel. 
And then in verse 17, he says, receive him, welcome him, accept him into your life. You might write down Luke 15. It's the same word used of the prodigal son. He says, the father ran out and received him. We see this idea of of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus is nailed there, he doesn't wait for everybody to ask for forgiveness, does he? But what's he say? He says, Father, what's the next word? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is a radical transformation of our hearts as we begin to receive just as God has received us. I'm curious, how many of you serve in the hospitality team? Is anybody a greeter here in the church? If you're a greeter, will you raise your hand? Thank you for what you do. It's awesome. I love it. I went to a church on vacation last summer, and the greeters were there to greet us, uh, and it was, it was kind of nice. Like, I do this for a living, you know, and I know they're out there, and I know they're there to make me feel welcome, but still, and they're like, hey, welcome to Seacoast Church. Uh, it's great having you here. I'm like, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for welcoming. What you do is important. Imagine, though, that we're all greeters, and you're standing at the front door. There's two doors. If you come in this way, you know there's the outer door, then there's the inner door. Let's say at the outer door, Jesus is a greeter. That'd be pretty cool, right? Jesus is a greeter. And the inner door, you're a greeter. Now, I asked you early in the sermon to think of that person that you can't stand. All right, you got him in your head. Let's say that person shows up next Sunday. You're a greeter at the inner door. Jesus is a greeter at the outer door. Jesus receives that person into Bible Center Church. Now they're in the lobby or they're in the windlock. And they're about to come through your door. Here's the question. Do you let them in? Some of you say, well, absolutely. This person, if you knew this person, they need to be in church. Yeah, absolutely. Some of you say, well, they're already here, so I might as well let them in. And some of you are like, well, you know, I would really have a hard time greeting them and showing them compassion and love. You know, we all do. But that's what Jesus is saying here through the Apostle Paul. Let's welcome people into our door just like Jesus has welcomed people into his. That's a different way of seeing life. Here's a question we could rephrase the Apostle Paul's words. How can we refuse a person God has already welcomed? How can we refuse a person God has already welcomed? Here's the main point this morning. Let's treat others as God treats us. Let's treat others as God treats us. I was reminded this week of the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey would belong to a Christian family, uh, was a Dutch family who tried to harbor Jews uh, from Nazi Germany. 1944, February 44, her house was ransacked. Her family was taken. Her sisters were taken to a concentration camp where the one on the left, Betsy, uh, would eventually die. Corey, I believe, is the one on the far right. In one of the last pages of her journal, she writes about an experience she had after the war. She dedicated her life to preaching a message of forgiveness and speaking on reconciliation in Germany. And she writes this in her journal. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room in the processing center at Ravensbrück. 
He was the first of our actual jailers since I had seen since that time. And then suddenly when I saw him, all the memories were there. The room of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pained face of embarrassment. He came up to me as the church was emptying and after I'd finished my message and this SS soldier was beaming, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. To think, as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. And then he did the unthinkable. He stepped, thrust out his hand to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. As the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through my heart, I saw Jesus who had died for this man. I knew Jesus had died for this man, but was I going to ask for more? Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive this man. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I couldn't. I felt nothing but anger. Not the slightest spot of warmth, not the ounce of charity. And so I again breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. I will not forgive him. But please give me your forgiveness. At that moment, the most incredible thing happened. Into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our own forgiveness anymore. When he tells us to love our enemies, he has to give us, along with the command, the love itself. And then she writes this, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to find out that the prisoner was me. This morning, whoever it is that you're at odds with, a family member, a friend, a Christian or not, my prayer is that you will treat others as God treats you. May God do his work in the hearts of Bible Center Church. Let's bow for prayer. Father, your gospel is calling us through this series to a radical change. And I believe there are families, whole families, that are going to be affected, have decisions to make this day. Lord, I believe there are brothers who are at odds, sisters who are at odds. Lord, we are a broken lot. And I ask that you would help us not to try to unify around a preference. We don't all want to look the same or act the same. But I pray over the years you will help us unify more around the gospel. Just as you saved me and washed my sins away, you did for the person to my right and the person to my left if their faith is in Christ. Lord, I know this series it's bringing up a lot of hard questions. What do we do about this? And what do we do about that? Lord, I pray that our pastors could provide some help. Our elders could provide some help. Our counselors. But Lord, we pray most of all for the Holy Spirit to counsel your people. And I pray that above all, we would choose love and not pride. Lord, I've got a lot of it. And I want more love. Help us all to be pointed in a gospel direction. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, if 
You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. I realize this sermon has been mostly to Christians. But I want to invite you into the family. Into a family not of the perfect, but into the family of the redeemed. Today, if you've seen your need for Christ and you believe God is pulling you into this family, let me invite you to pray and ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You can put it in your own words. I'll pray a prayer. I invite you to pray after me in your heart. Dear Lord, I know I'm broken. I know I can't save myself. And I know I fall short in so many ways. But I believe Jesus loved me. And I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again the third day. Come into my life and be my Savior. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that today, I invite you after the service. I'm going to be here at the front. We have pastors all around the building. Just let one of us know. Hey, Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer. I'd love to follow up with you this week. Christians, let's take just a quick minute and ask God to help us do the unthinkable, to reconcile, to forgive those that we have struggled to forgive. And then we'll sing.